Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Mark Weisblatt. Jesse, we are so close, yet so far. Mark Weisblatt, self-described filler of Toronto's 1236 News Burrito. Welcome back. Jesse, I would like to apologize in advance to all of your listeners who are triggered by the sound of my voice. I'll try and make up for it by saying something smart. That is thoughtful of you. They appreciate that. Mark, today we're going to talk about the National Post. They have taken a firm stand on their duty to publish boring and terrible opinions. Oh, that's what you think. (laughs) We're going to talk about Bell Media. They have misallocated $36 million in community television funds. Let's not even get into Quibi. (laughs) We'll save that one. They've misallocated these funds. What do you mean? E-Talk Road to the Oscars is not local community content? You know, Hollywood is a community too, you classist CRTC pricks. Mark, thank you for coming back. Listen, this episode is brought to everybody by Andrea Bungay, Jesse Hill, Bob Evans, Emily Lau, Serge Leger, Nathan Wren, Steve Purificati, and Eric. Hi, my name's Eric. Uh, I'm a technologist who lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I support Canada Land because as somebody who lives outside of Canada, it's a great way to find out about things that are going on inside of Canada that I might miss. And Mark, this episode is brought to everybody who's listening to this. The only people listening to this part are the people who aren't paying uh, Canada Land monthly subscriptions. It is our crowdfunding month. And uh, this is where I remind people that that their access, their ability to listen to this show and all of our shows is because a bunch of other people are paying for it and they might want to consider becoming one of those people. Mark, are you one of those people? You support Canada Land? Uh, no, I, I think it would be a conflict of interest for me to be sending you money at the same time that I'm writing about you. God forbid that you should give us, we have been enriching your life for seven years. I don't know that there's anybody out there who listens to more of our stuff than you. Jesse, I don't know if there's anybody out there that takes more material from my daily newsletter than you. Credited. Credited. We we keep an eye on the media. We pay for our Globe and Mail subscription here to get past the paywall. We pay for our Toronto Star subscription. You can pay us. You're on your little, like, no Jesse is allowed Slack channel talking about Canada Land. We've become such a big part of your life. And this is for everybody else out there. Don't think that becoming a member of Canada Land, becoming a supporter of Canada Land, is just for people who are, like, moved in their gut by the mission of Canada Land. No, if, if you use our stuff... If you just listen to it, even if you listen to it and disagree with it, but we're like a service that you use in your life, 
then think about making that service a little bit better and paying for that service that you that you take advantage of. Mark, what possible reason beyond this this really dismissible conflict of interest excuse do you have seven years of free Canada land? What is the reason to not support Canada land, Mark? Uh, the reason for me personally to consider myself exempt from supporting Canada land is because uh, we are sharing space in the media ecology I don't currently ask for anything from you in return. Um, uh, I, I don't know. I, now that you mention it, maybe there is not a reason to avoid supporting Canada land. I think everyone out there has heard this, that stammering failure to, to defend this position. You don't want to be that guy. Uh, listen, um, it's okay. You can listen to the show for free. But if you do support us, um, it helps a lot. We want to give you some stuff. We're driving towards a goal of hiring somebody to be permanently with us uh, looking at French language media, somebody who is fluent not only in the language but in the culture so that we can really bring a whole new kind of coverage and actually cover media in Canada and uh, go to canadaland.com slash join to become a supporter. Join Mark there. You'll see him there. Thank you. Okay, Mark, I want to talk to you about this baffling salvo that we both read in the National Post. I think the only thing to do here is to read people a bit of this. And this was credited to National Post View. It was not um, credited to any particular writer there. National Post View, a safe space for controversial opinions. Expect more of what readers have come to love about the National Post, because our mission hasn't changed. It's just clearer than ever why it's so important. And what follows is this kind of like mission statement, you know, many years in, as to meet the new National Post. This is what we're going to do. It's back to the basics of our founding principles. A lot has changed since the National Post published its first edition 22 years ago this month. But what has never changed is our central mission to challenge the accepted, often flaccid and left-leaning flaccid and left-leaning, often flaccid and left-leaning thinking that prevails in most of Canada's institutions. It goes on to kind of define what they're going to do as uh, publish challenges to accepted wisdom, odd opinions, unpopular opinions, damn it. They won't be dissuaded from making us think. And they're going to start by bringing back Barbara Kay, who wrote a piece about, guess what? Transgender issues, transgender sports policies have thrown fair play out the window. Rex Murphy, wokeism has become a feeble cartoon of pseudo-thought. Jamil Giovanni, new voice, wokeness, the new religion of the left. Jonathan Kay, white guy heroically calls racism on Asian and Latin American women. So, okay, Mark, I'm not going to spend a whole segment on the obvious here, that these opinions that are being trotted out as like, here are these really challenging, odd, unpopular opinions. It's just the same stuff retread over and over. It's like the Globe and Mail, like meet the new Globe and Mail. We're bringing Margaret Wente back. Like, I wanted to talk to you because you had an interesting tweet about this. Like, why did this come when it did? It was just so strange and contrary to the moment when I think people are saying, actually, we want more news. And we know the Post is in such terrible shape. They're, you know, they, they, their marquee columnist, Christy Blatchford, died. And an amazing reporter, Von Mala, is gone. They're not replacing these people with new people. Matt Gurney, who edits the comment section, he was on Twitter basically saying, yeah, I can't do anything about getting new voices here. Somebody basically has to die for us to get a new voice in here. And then there's this editorial that is almost like this, like, brave new, like, this is the new editorial direction. And it's the old editorial direction. You had some speculation about that that I, I, I'm wondering if you can share with us. 
what did Paul Godfrey have to say five years ago about the future of post-media? There may be an opportunity here where we'll have one large newspaper chain across Canada owned by a vanity owner. We saw it happen at the Washington Post with Jeff Bezos, and we saw it happen at Torstar, where the Toronto Star was taken over this past pandemic spring by a couple of new owners, frontmen for the operation. Jordan Bitov, who is now the publisher of the Toronto Star, and Paul Rivet, a guy who was involved in Fairfax Financial, which ended up uh, investing in a big chunk of Tor Star as their stock plummeted through the years of Star Touch. These were the saviors that people were imagining were out there for a Canadian newspaper. And I think the future belongs to people like that, having a dream of being that vanity owner. And there's enough speculation that these localized post-media newspapers from the Vancouver Sun to the Calgary Herald, Ottawa Citizen, Montreal Gazette, that ultimately those will fall into the hands of Torstar makes perfect sense. And that there's somebody else out there who who would be interested in getting their hands on the National Post. It is substantiated to a degree by rumors that I have been hearing increasingly and from increasingly credible sources that some sort of a Torstar post-media merger acquisition, just basically those things consolidating into the same thing, is imminent. Well, Tor- Torstar got the same uh, lender to throw them a line to rebuild uh, the company as it was. And, and these guys yeah. that bought Torstar, I mean, they were interviewed by Rosie DeMano the day that they moved into their new corner offices. How many times have we gone through this rotation where somebody comes onto the journalism scene and says, I have all of the answers? What was maybe a a sea change that we're seeing here? These guys were saying, maybe we don't know. And maybe, maybe we need to listen. Maybe we need to learn. Maybe we need to talk to our employees to figure out what to do to bring bring the Toronto Star back to its glory. I, yeah, I, don't- I mean, I took from that, as you did, that these guys were very green. A plan didn't come across in that interview. And you can take from that one of two conclusions, I think. One is that they're wealthy idiots, and this is a vanity project that's bound to fail. And the other is that they're not particularly concerned with the editorial side of things, that they you know, associate themselves with David Peterson to placate the uh, liberal party alignment uh, part of the the Toronto Star, the Atkinson principles part of it, you know, we had some lip service for, but they weren't really trying to solve this global problem of how to save a newspaper. But I want to get back to where we started, which is why this weird uh, mission statement in the post. And if I understand your analysis correctly, and maybe I don't, what we have are kind of two trends here. One is that we've already seen Post Media and Torstar uh, do a swap and kill where they basically removed competition from the Canadian local news market saying, okay, you take this market, we'll take that market. Sell us this newspaper or trade us this newspaper in that little town. We'll kill it so we'll have the only paper in town and you can have this other town. So they're already collaborating like that and the competition bureau is looking into it. And the rumors that I'm hearing is that what follows next is basically we just have one newspaper chain and it's probably Torstar. Then the National Post is the weird sore thumb that sticks out. It's sort of the ugly duckling. What place does the National Post have? Yeah, libertarian, right-wing, provocative commentary is a a different animal from from the culture of Torstar. 
And that's the thing that you can maybe sell. That thing is the thing that maybe you want to polish it up as a trophy for some rich person who thinks that uh, we're getting too soft and woke and Canada really needs something that isn't on the fringe, but is uh, representing those controversial opinions. And if this is your take that I think I'm representing, they're basically, the post is on the market. The National Post is being eyed by a possible buyer as a, as a standalone to pick it away from the rest of Post Media. And that buyer is not necessarily looking for a cogent business case. They're looking to know that this is an ideological platform, possibly an ideological weapon that is committed to conservative views and to uh, contrary views to this uh, flaccid time of ours. Is that the basic idea? That scares the hell out of you and your audience, right? We're, we're supposed to cower in, in fear about what the possibilities are for the power that this potential new era of the National Post can wield, right? Not so much. I think I feel the way you do. Like you're mocking that idea that it would actually be that influential. I think I kind of agree. I have a problem with there being some rich guy's vanity newspaper that's purporting to be a national newspaper that's taking government subsidies and that exists just to kind of like beat people about the head again and again with Rex Murphy's opinions. But how different is that than the National Post we have right now? Okay, but a culture has developed. You've covered it extensively here on on the show about uh, new forms of content creation. These different commentary outlets, stuff like the Post Millennial, uh, True North, which is a charitable mm-hmm. organization. The McDonald Laurier Institute has yes. uh, staffed up to try and be an influence there uh, with this form of commentary. Poor Terry Molesky needed a place to hang his hat and he found it with a McDonald Laurier. Yeah. Uh, what I read in that National Post manifesto, it's in fact they're not going to be hiring more paid columnists. But there is more material than ever for them to draw from, from from these different worlds of uh, subsidized think tankery, Mm -hmm. and that that stuff can be stitched together to create a product in the form of a national newspaper that they can simulate the original mission that the National Post had, which at the time involved hiring hundreds of employees. Uh, They've still got Colby Kosh as a staff columnist at the Post, as far as I can tell. He writes about whatever he likes, right? But a lot of the other voices that are in there, either, I don't know, they're doing it in in retirement, uh, maybe they're working for free. Comrade Black, who started the entire enterprise and still uh, deserves a place in there. I mean, it was it was his idea after all. <laughs> the 73-year-old white man, Rex Murphy, who other National Post staff took issue with, he is the franchise. Yeah. And if you think, well, he he got there before you did. And what, you know, what whatever impression that the National Post has made, it's based on having him around yeah. as a columnist ever ever since he, he jumped ship from the Globe and Mail. What is all of this worth? You know, what what contribution is a National Post going to make to society? I, I can't imagine. In this clown show of social media what all these different columnists are are talking about becomes cherry picked you know people decide to draw attention to things that they've been outraged by but there's another world out there right of the old school print media reader that enjoys the package that they're putting together 
And I think they want to reinforce that they're they're in it for the long haul. Mm-hmm. That they they imagine th- this being sustainable in, in whatever way they can make it happen. And I think that that future belongs to commentary created with an agenda. With love, Mark, it, just the most unique speaking style of anyone who's been on this show. Which word do you emphasize? All of them. It's your own special thing. Listen. The patchwork that you're describing is actually a very frightening thing, and I will get a little bit dire about this, that we know what happens when you drive down the cost that you're willing to pay for a good opinion down to where the market will take it, it actually goes beneath zero. You go beneath paying people $500 for an op-ed, $100, $50. At a certain point, there are people who are willing to kind of pay you if they could or just give it to you for free. And those are special interests. And those are think tanks and places like that. And you could have a newspaper that is just stitched together from various people who don't actually make a living off of writing or having opinions or trying to engage people or do research or reporting, but have some other reason to try to influence popular opinion. I agree with you. They're usually pretty bad at it. It's usually the worst way to sway popular opinion is to have some very strange and usually not very entertaining or engaging piece in the National Post. But if the future that you're suggesting that everyone's going to love, or at least there's an audience for, is just some weird assemblage, and we're already seeing it happen, like Jerry Diaz writing an op-ed across Post Media, a union leader in the conservative press, why are they platforming him? Is it because of their rigorous adherence to unpopular opinions, even those that they don't agree with? No, it's because he's stumping for their Facebook Google link tax. So that's not disclosed. Really, you're just talking about a state-subsidized propaganda rag for whoever happens to give them something that they can throw in there. That sucks. And that's shabby. And the biggest problem is it stands in the way of people doing new things. Like you're kind of imagining that there's a readership for that. We already know that the National Post cannot sustain itself based on the public's interest and interest in paying for it. There's no popular substantiation or mandate that the people of Canada have given this paper. It's just this weird zombie lurching around and throwing shit at us. Sometimes the shit is really bad. Sometimes it's an incitement for us to dislike our neighbor or ignore our neighbor when they're crying out for help and saying that there's problems with systemic racism. No, there isn't. Uh, There is a big problem with this paper. You know, this was the generation uh, that saw the newspaper as as the most uh, effective way to do what they wanted to do. Uh, They figured out how to get paid for it. Uh, Those people are still around. There's still an audience that's interested in reading what they have to say. There's still a romance, the concept of getting your words rolling off a printing press, being able to land on people's doorstep, uh, communicate some ideas to the people. I, I hope the National Post sticks around with a more eclectic slate of columnists because of what it can still contribute to the discourse. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, 
along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Mark, duly noted is something that you are very familiar with. I will kick it off by duly noting a truly revolting piece of news reporting from CBC's The National. Substance abuse isn't new to the community, but now many have more money to pay for it. The federal government didn't ask applicants to prove they lost their job during the pandemic before getting the benefit, which Simon says made it very easy to get. If you were in the middle of your addiction and you had received CERB money, what would you do with it? I'd probably drink it all up right away. They had a correspondent go up to a town in the Northwest Territories called Fort Resolution, and the story... I, I don't even think I'm um, summarizing it in an unkind way to say that basically it's a story that says, well, these indigenous people in the Northwest Territories got all this Serb money and a lot of them just spent it on alcohol. And on the other hand, there's one woman, at least, who spent it on survival. So good for her. But uh, for the most part, this was uh, money that people drank away. And Mark, I don't like uh, dispute that there is probably, you know, you bring in a lot of uh, sudden government money into some communities that had long pre-existing issues and you're going to see impacts of that. But but this kind of reporting, I mean, the trend is that young cub reporters, almost always not indigenous, are the ones doing these very remote stories for the CBC. The idea that this could be balanced by having somebody who didn't drink the money away and the characterization of uh, the indigenous people in this report as people who can't be trusted with uh, a bit of government money because they're just going to damage themselves is just reinforcing the worst conceptions out there. There is a way to tell stories like this. This ain't that way. And I want to thank our listener, uh, Zach Brown, for bringing that report to my attention. Duly noted. Mark, what do you have? I want to duly note a disclaimer that's been making the rounds. It runs on CHCH television from Hamilton, Ontario, home of the hilarious House of Frankenstein. It's running before some of their retro sitcoms. The following presentation is a product of its time. It depicts prejudices that were wrong then and remain unacceptable today, CHCH does not condone discrimination of any kind. Rather than ignoring past discriminatory practices, exhibiting work like this allows viewers to engage in thought or discussion that educates and promotes the importance of social justice and inclusivity. Viewer discretion is advised. Now, Jesse, who's going to disagree with that, right? Especially if it only flashes on your screen for a second before you settle in for an episode of The Brady Bunch or Gilligan's Island. I'm going to guess you. Uh, the initial reaction to the fact they're running this disclaimer is people you know, entering that outrage state, right? Wokeness overreach. Mm-hmm. But I got into a discussion of this disclaimer with a, another podcaster, Toronto Mike. Mm-hmm. And when we were talking about the disclaimer, uh, he entered a state of euphoria, remembering all the political incorrectness on the sitcoms that he grew up with. And it led me to the conclusion that they're, they're not running this sitcom out of, out of some sort of fear of a, of a mob uh, rallying against the television station. But in fact, it's an enticement. It's a way of drawing people in. 
to watch these stale old sitcoms <laughs> in the same way uh-huh. that city TV in Toronto would you know, run the baby blue movie and beforehand let you know that this film was completely concerned with sexuality. The great Mark Daly, right? He would chuckle, viewer discretion is advised, and it would be more reason for a teenage boy to stick around and watch the rest of the movie. I think for the aging members of Generation X that CHCH is luring them in Mm -hmm. and doing the best promotion ever for the fact that that's the place to watch your sitcoms before the sensitivity readers arrived on the scene. What a slick and somewhat conspiratorial set of motives and machinations you ascribe to the programmers at CHCH 12 Hamilton as they rerun old Gilligan's Island. Do you think, Mark, that maybe... They just wanted to throw on some cheap old content that still gets a decent audience. And they realized that the stuff is filled with stuff that as all even old episodes of Friends don't even really hold up anymore. Some of the social mores having changed. So let's get ahead of that and just throw up a disclaimer. And it was a nice happy accident that people freaked out and brought more attention to these cheapo reruns. Is, is, is that possible or was it all preordained? Duly noted. You can't duly note. All right, I'll, you can duly note your own. I'll let you. I, uh, th- I'm gonna. <laughs> You're <laughs> for you, Mark. I don't know how this show works. I want to just finish by duly noting uh, my own uh, mistake. Really, and uh, last week on the show, I made a bit of an ass of myself. I was talking about trick or treating and the ban on trick or treating and the, the advice here in Toronto that we shouldn't trick or treat and how that's just ridiculous when people can go to a, a dance studio, for example, still. And uh, that this is an outdoor activity with masks on. And, you know, I had a bit of a tantrum about it. And it was brought to my attention that, that uh, this is just a completely classist analysis for me that just ignored the existence of people who live in apartment buildings where it is not safe for um, groups of kids to be wandering the halls, getting into elevators, going from door to door. Uh, and that does present a big COVID risk. I have a bit more understanding as to how that public health advice came out. And then you start to actually think that maybe it was the federal advice from Teresa Tams, you know, telling kids, no problem, Halloween's going to be just fine, that maybe that's where the blame lies. Um, anyhow, I think that uh, that was definitely a blind spot on my part. So uh, I figured I'd uh, apologize for that. Uh, yeah, whatever. Duly noted. So, Mark, we're going to talk about this... Uh, I guess little scandal with Bell Television. I realized this yesterday as we were talking about it here with our team. To get into this, it requires people to know what public access television is, which I just sort of assumed everybody knows. Mark, I don't know if the young people even know what public access television is. I think that we might have to provide a bit of a history lesson here. So let me do that. Okay, bear with me and gather around as I tell a tale of a time of linear broadcast television where we consider the airwaves public property. And if a company wanted a piece of that public property with which they just basically run American stuff and sell ads against it, well, they had to give something back to the public. And uh, one of the things they gave back, some of it was news, some of it was putting money into a pot to make Canadian content. But one thing in the olden days is that like there was a time at night when your American TV would go off And weird shit would be broadcast, public access. Anybody could go fill out some forms and have the rabbi discussion hour, Tamil talk, 
or really strange conspiracy people. Before there were blogs and Twitter accounts for these people, they would sometimes be on at 3 a.m. There was just all kinds of strange stuff. People would drive to the TV station and there would be one, you know, set with, with the lights fixed and they'd put a different background on and, uh, you know, just your uncle would have a TV show. And that was public access TV and it was widely ridiculed. Uh, this is where Saturday Night Live, uh, half of their sketches were parodies of various um, imaginary public access. Wayne's World was a joke on a hypothetical public access show. People don't know this, Mark. This existed for many, many years. And it was how TV stations gave back. And it was a condition of their license with the CRTC, who regulates television. Because the airwaves in Canada are public property. Yes, and according to the gospel of the Canadian Radio, Television, and Telecommunications Commission, if you have a license to broadcast, then you have some, some obligation to serve the people. I just said that. But yes, that is exactly right. And then when the digital era came and we had Bell 5 on-demand television. They called Jesse Brown. And they We're invited talk him about to that. do some webisodes in <laughs> Canada did. land. Yes. So what am I talking about here? Basically, the same philosophy was grandfathered into the new system. If you had public access running on TV stations late at night as payback for having a TV channel, well, now that Bell wants to have on-demand TV, seven, eight years ago, they would also have on-demand public access. Now, Mark, the only reason why anybody ever watched public access is because it was on. It just happened to be what was on TV when you were up and couldn't go back to sleep or on drugs or something. And the weirdest thing, when a guy I know got a job as one of the guys running this new Bell on demand public access, Bell local had money to spend on local content, but he wanted to reimagine what public access TV could be. So here's what Bell local sounded like when they announced themselves. Welcome to a new revolution in how we connect with our communities. We're really excited about this partnership with Bell Local. Bell Local empowers you to create and share local content with the inspiring and entertaining stories close to your home. So uh, the history lesson continues, Mark. Uh, I got reached out to by this guy saying, hey, I have this budget and I, I don't want to just put on the kind of cliched public access TV. I want to do new stuff. Do you have any ideas? And I said, well, I happen to be about to launch this thing called Canada Land, but it's media criticism. Bell can't own it. I have to own it. And he said, no problem. We'll pay for the production of it. We'll give you like professional camera people, a studio, but it's your stuff. You can put it on YouTube, do what you want with it. And there was a short-lived Canada Land webisode series. You can still go and see these episodes on our YouTube channel, which we barely ever touch. And uh, when I launched Canada Land, we had these very strange videos. I knew a bunch of people who worked for this thing and they were taking on in earnest, like, let's find like cool people to do a food show with. Let's do stuff about comedy in Canada and Toronto. But it's almost like they made this stuff and then they took it out in the woods, dug a hole, stuck these TV shows in the hole and then buried them. And I know from my buddy who worked there, these shows got like views in the hundreds. Nobody was doing on-demand public access. For years, they were running this enterprise where they were making content that nobody saw, very few people saw. Were you aware of this? Uh, I knew about it because I saw the episodes you did at the time of Canada Land. And I also <laughs> caught on to the fact that what was happening, I guess they were uh, uh, trying to ride this trend of urbanism, right? Doing, doing different shows around uh, cities where, where Bell had a TV license, right? And they would 
go and do these these shows about uh, local architecture or uh, preservationist personalities. Uh, just I, I guess playing playing to this idea that there's a, a hyper local story around every corner, right? That became a, a trend in journalism for a while, and it was something to capitalize on for this for this form of community access television. But it seems yeah. like after a few years, Bell got cynical about what they were obligated to produce here. And they decided that it could be more efficiently achieved if they just turned the community channel into another platform for shows that they were already producing at CTV. And that's where they ran into trouble. I mean, there were problems with the, the earnest stuff as well. Like the contributors weren't paid was one thing. You know, you, know you, you got your production made for free, but you didn't get any money for it. And Bell was taking their cut of this money. You know, there was uh, all kinds of stuff behind the scenes. But it was still like the people making it were happy that they got to go and find interesting people in the community and try to do this sort of urban celebratory Torontopia, whatever kind of stuff. Well, there was there was also a time when people were excited about the idea of being on television. There was if that they, time if they were if they were willing to be filmed, right? It was it was a thrill that yeah. there you would be beamed into all these homes and people channel surfers would uh, land on your face at random and they would say, "I saw you on TV." But not if it's on demand. But in, in any event, we're talking about this now because the CRTC has finally wised up to what Bell was getting away with for years, which, as you mentioned earlier, more and more, they were not doing those types of public access on demand. They started to, to, to do things like if they did a show about uh, CTV's Mary's Kitchen Crush, then they would do Mary's Big Kitchen Party as like a promotional show of their own show. They would do that for Letterkenny. They would do that for Cirque du Soleil. They did that for their Oscar coverage. And then they went to the CRTC and they said that we've produced basically this ad for our own show. And that's how we're fulfilling our obligation to the public of making local community programming. And they did that with $36 million, which is a drop in the bucket for Bell. No big deal, right? Except that that's money that the public was owed for this piece of public property that we gave to Bell to make just big gobs of money, like massive, massive profits. I, I think that this is an embarrassing story of greed for Bell, but I, I think it's bigger than that, Mark. And I'm curious if you'll agree with me. I see this as sort of a canary in the coal mine allegory for the larger problem in the Canadian TV system, which is like just a bigger execution of the same idea, which is that the CanCon bucket of money, public access, public community, local programming is just a tiny little part of that. There is set-asides and clawbacks to make scripted dramas and comedies. News is one of the obligations. And I think what we're seeing is that the social contract, the deal that the CRTC, which represents the public and, you know, the airwaves that we own, that deal is crumbling. And it's just really dispiriting for everybody in the production world. You know, it's always been dispiriting, but like in the same way that my buddy who worked on Bell Local was like, it's kind of great that I get paid to make TV, but I'm kind of making it for nobody. It's just sort of a make work project. I think that that is what is, is happening to the entire system at this point. Here's, here's the thing. It was a consequence of uh, telecom companies taking over more of the broadcast media. Mm -hmm. And what they lobbied the CRTC to do at one point was say that if uh, 
Rogers owned a city TV station in the same market where Rogers was selling cable subscriptions. Now they, they don't have to produce uh, community cable in Toronto, but in fact, by hiring newscasters and reporters somewhere like City TV, right, uh, that's become their new form of community television. Where, where Bell Media were playing these games was in markets where they don't own a local TV station, and that's where they're obligated to spend the money. And that's where they were caught trying to pass off these corporate promotions as a different form of community programming, uh, them arguing back to the commission that, in fact, as far as they could tell, right, they're just going by the letter of the law, uh, doing the, whatever the minimal requirement expected of them was, that, in fact, these shows did live up to what they were obligated to do. And there was a bit of a fight there. It went on for a, a number of years before the CRTC put its foot down and ordered them to follow through. Keep in mind, this is happening with the backdrop of uh, a BCE, Bell Canada, you know, having billions of dollars at stake here with all the different federally regulated things related to telecom, right? $36 million is inconsequential relative to uh, the corporate field that they're playing in. And it would be, look, it would be very exciting uh, for certain sorts of filmmakers if this form of television became as popular as podcasting, right? Woe is the lonely filmmaker that just wants some eyeballs on their work and a little subsidy to pay for it. And if they wanted it from Bell and its community television platform, I don't even think they were allowed to put this stuff on YouTube, right? It's sort of stuck there behind this walled garden, at least in the first place. And it's a one-way ticket to obscurity. Yeah, I mean, if the point is for the community to have a voice or for local voices to get seen, the last thing you'd want to do is to put it on this service and to work with Bell on this. I mean, there's just a much better, cleaner, more efficient ways of reaching a mass audience and actually having a voice. You know, this is a great way to suppress the voice. I think if I can make my point a bit better than I did before, I think it's that the ridiculousness of making content this way and having it buried in the woods is something that we're going to see play out again. It was one thing to make Canadian sitcoms and dramas that very few people watched, but they were still watched. There were still thousands of people watching the things. And then you could have some kind of a debate on their critical merits. It was still worth it. And it's a nice bulwark against American culture. And then I could get into some debate about whether it really is Canadian culture and whether it's worth it, but whatever, you know, these things existed in a way that at least you were conscious they existed. What if dramas and sitcoms are similarly funded and seen by hundreds of people and in an on-demand world, I think that's increasingly going to be the case that this kind of content production in Canada has become such an afterthought to our broadcasters that it, they're just not making stuff that, like, you know, it's a rare exception and sometimes there's a big exception, but there's dozens of series that I don't think anybody would even recognize the names of them. I don't think a system like that can sustain, you know, at some point somebody's got to call bullshit on a multi-million dollar industry churning out television that nobody watches while meanwhile some kid in their basement is amassing tens or hundreds of millions of views and launching careers and launching an industry completely separate from that system that was supposed to be boosting that voice and not the voice of the Cirque du Soleil promotional content. 
Okay, but look at Quibi, which is going to go down in history as the most infamous entertainment byproduct of the pandemic. And we're done. That's Canada Land Shortcuts. Email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Mark, where can people find you? Oh, 1236.ca for Canada's Daily News Burrito at 1236. Our website is canadaland.com where you can find this week's episode of Commons, which is so good on the secret history of the RCMP. It's so good. Oh, oh, Archie. Archie is great. Um, One day you'll talk about me that way. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Kate McIntosh. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, this is the time of the year when we need you to show it by supporting us canadaland.com slash join don't think twice just go do it we'll make you proud 